0: Chili Effect is sponsored by WallStreetWindow.com and listeners like you. And now, and now the, most, the most underrated voice in all, in all media, Chuck O'Chelly.
1: July 22, 2021, allegedly, according to that thing we call a calendar. This indeed is the show you were looking for. How do I know this? Because you're hearing my voice. Anyway. <laughs> thursday thursday second to last broadcast day of the week anyhow and we are live of course you might be hearing this further on down the stream but no matter who you are when you are where you are whatever welcome to it so i'm really happy that i've got larry hancock back with me because we have done an extensive series on the complete works of larry hancock and honestly we've run out of books Uh, for the time being perhaps i'll ask larry about that in just a minute or two as to whether we have permanently run out of books or not anyway that's one of my questions but uh tonight we're going to do an overview actually on all of the stuff that we've already covered and uh i i do have some questions i do have some questions i want to get larry's thoughts down and uh who, who knows maybe we'll uh get into some other topics as well one other addendum episode is already planned and that'll be on asymmetrical warfare uh which is a topic that needs to be examined academically (laughs) i don't hear anybody doing it i think we should do it so and larry has agreed to do it so therefore i gotta and before i say anything and even ask larry how he's doing i just want to say that uh I really appreciate your your time and your tolerance. We've had some interruptions because uh well, let's be honest, you you had a computer crash on you. Uh there were other technical issues that occurred. We did one of the episodes via phone. Um the delays not, you know, not earth-shattering uh, in, in any way shape or form. We we consistently put these out nearly every other week. Uh with, with the exception of the past month or so. <laughs> But um, it, it's been really great, and I want to thank you for your, uh, your time, your patience, your work always, but uh, I want to just say that I really appreciate you going through this with me, and in fact, I hope to uh, do this with a couple of other authors of value in the near future, but even if the only series I do with an author on their complete works is yours, uh, I'm extremely pleased and grateful to have uh, been able to do it with you. So thank you, Larry Hancock, but also, how are you doing tonight?
2: Oh, I'm doing good, Chuck. I am doing much better with a new computer and, and not having to fight some of the struggles uh, that I've been fighting for the last few months. Well, actually longer than that. I, I'd gotten to the point where I thought I was never actually going to be able to write anything again <laughs> because my computer <laughs> was against me, um, whether it was a, just an article or in, in any event. But So I'm doing much better and I, I do appreciate the journey which is kind of like the last few months have been. It, it's kind of Like revisiting your life, you know, but at least my life for the last, uh, oh, 10, 15 years of of going through this progression of books, it's kind of revisiting the whole journey, the learning experience, uh, interesting to me as well.
1: Right, and it's not as though uh, you're never going to be back on the show for sure. I'm going to keep inviting you uh, as long as you keep accepting. <laughs> so uh, that's going to keep happening. We, we may have something to talk about in November or before November, I should say, <clears throat> because uh, uh, I, I know that there's some talk about the Lancer Conference, and you've been a part of that for many years. So we, we may have discussions about that coming up uh, in the near future, not too, too near, but in the near future um and i I'm really happy to have gone through this with you I don't think anybody's ever done this with you where it's like let's go through everything um right. and so i'm extremely happy uh it's you know it, it's it's a weird thing to look back on all that right because there there are things that go on in your life, not just the journey itself and Okay, so I had to learn new things, and I had to come up with new skills, and the interesting people I've encountered, and <laughs> the the things that you learned along the way while teaching others. um But there is, you know, life also happens in the meantime, <laughs> and that that's that's a whole other side of it, right? So th- there's a personal end of this where you know you, you you could talk about well, and at that time this was happening in my life too. Um, and you're an active guy. You, you, you've you got uh, more than one thing you do. Uh, a little little story for everybody, though. I don't know if I've ever discussed this on air before, but it's so funny because past couple of years, in fact, I don't know, you know, past few months when the computer was going bad, uh, you, you had other issues. But past couple of years, a unique thing with Larry was that I would have to call him up on Skype early. And the reason was that <laughs> at first he could he could hear me but i couldn't hear him we had to wait a few minutes for larry's voice to be like able to be heard and that included any of the shows we did you know with with groups or where it was just me and larry either way it was like call larry up and wait okay well larry i know you can hear me but i'll just keep talking here until i hear your voice and on the other end i imagine larry was talking the whole time and making noise <laughs> and eventually i would hear mid-sentence larry would come in so i guess the computer should be about ready to oh yeah there you are larry this would happen every time before we did a show <laughs> and um it, it was it was interesting i think I, we had like a couple a handful of times where it was quick but usually it was a couple of minutes uh every single time and it it, it, it was like a joke oh there's larry you know, or I'd, I when we had Carmine on, I'd be talking to Carmine, well, we can't hear Larry yet, but we'll just talk here for a minute until Larry comes. <laughs> and he could hear us, but we couldn't hear him. Um, that, that's something that happened every single time. Uh, so, but today, I connected with Larry with his new computer for the first time.
2: No issue like
1: that, right, Larry?
2: <laughs> it kind of shocking. I guess it's just one lesson we can pass on to everybody is the kind of, for me, I, I suspected lots of different trouble, you know, viruses, application problems, internet access, lack of bend, bandwidth, when all the time it was really a, a disk that just kept getting worse and worse as far as disk access time. And it's like, okay, here's a lesson to learn. It, it would be better to learn that lesson before the thing crashes, which mine did. Right. So uh, just a little life lesson along the way. Well, yeah, and, and
1: again, the funny thing to me is that it, it happened for so long. Uh, I honestly thought it was your Internet access because, look, people have different Internet access. And if you're not in an area where maybe, you know, the cable company is the best thing to use, um, sometimes there's very spotty, very slow, or it, let's call it um, inconsistent access to the Internet <laughs> Um And I thought that was your issue, honestly. It was like, this must be a speed issue because he's on a lower speed connection, and that's probably what's available because you don't live around a lot of people, Um, to to my understanding. Where you live, I'm not saying specifically where you live, but I'm just saying that where you live, I mean, you've told me before, I got to go to a store, I got to drive for like an hour and a half. Uh, So you're not like in a, a highly populated area which could be an issue for internet. So that's what I assumed all this time. And uh, meanwhile, we come to find out, no, maybe not. Maybe it was just the slow disk issue, uh, which eventually gave way to no disk issue because it was done. Um, Anyhow, don't want to take up a lot of time with this. I just thought it was funny and worthy of mention here. Um, Anyway, so as we uh, uh, begin to look back at the complete works now, uh, first question on my mind, as I kind of hinted to when I was doing the introduction, is are we really looking at the complete works of Larry Hancock? Are you planning on, or do you have a idea in your mind that there will be other books that uh, will will go right along on that bookshelf with the national security state issue and uh, and, and indeed political assassinations? Is there a plan? Because tipping point, to my mind represents a here's where I've gone and I'm done uh, kind of uh, that that just seems to be what it says to me Um, not to say that the work can't continue but maybe you're done with writing about the JFK assassination Um, but it doesn't mean there aren't other political assassinations you could cover and in addition I mean as far as the national security state goes you could create an entire library and spend your entire life doing that uh and and you would you might have a chance of covering it larry i i couldn't um but there's always more so is there more that uh, could bear the name larry hancock in book form or are you maybe moving away from being the author on these two subjects uh you know another genre another another point of interest i mean where are you going as far as being an author?
2: Well, I think an interesting point to me is I I certainly am going to be continuing to do research on on several different subjects. Uh, and I, while I thought that that might taper off in regard to the JFK conspiracy, actually my friend David Boylan and I are pursuing what I think is a really important extension of one of the leads that I discussed in Tipping Point, or we discussed in Tipping Point, which is mm-hmm. a couple of incidents at Redbird Airfield uh, with Wayne January uh, that occurred the week of the assassination. And that that may well, well, it, it's already a paper that's just about as long as the Wheaton Leeds paper, okay. which is a monograph. And there are there are several things that I'm doing right now that could turn into monographs, uh, which, for me, are pretty pretty extensive. Of course, I, I said that about Tipping Point. Tipping Point was going to be a monograph of about 40 pages, and it turned into a 300-page book. Right. But here's where the other problem comes in. I would say, since I started writing, you know, uh, 15 years or so, the publishing industry has moved away from me more than... The, the opposite when I was first started writing, I was able to get into some pretty pretty well-placed mid sized publishing houses because they had people on staff that were interested in these subjects mm-hmm. uh, not just the JFK assassination but things like uh, political warfare that sort of thing um, Over the, the past year, years those people and those publications, Have moved away, and it's it's very difficult to get a even a medium stream publisher. If you're writing on history, uh, you can get an academic publisher, um, but that's not going to get you out to a large public population. It's not even going to get you. Most academic books uh, circulation is limited to you know the classroom essentially, honestly. Uh, and I can say that because I'm pretty close to one academic publisher for sure. So, Chuck, the answer to your question is, my last two or three books, I've been struggling to find a publisher and even if I had a new surprise attack or a new creating chaos, um, I don't think I could find a publisher for it. Their, their demands in terms of market size, their demands in terms of name recognition. Uh, Stu Mm. and I have taken what we consider very important books to, Stu's taken them to a number of agents. Uh, The publishers will tell you if you don't have an agent, don't even talk to us. They will not talk to an individual author. And Stu's taken that to agents and agents say, we just don't pass the mark for what they're going to need money-wise in sales. So to answer your question, I I think my answer would be I don't plan to stop writing. But as far as books go, uh, the market's really closed in on us.
1: Yeah, see, this is a problem with... Uh, uh, look, this is not the largest publisher, but I mean, I'll, I'll pull them as an example. Uh, Skyhorse, who has, you know, some sort of cooperative agreement with uh, Simon & Schuster, Right. I would think they would be more than happy to publish your work when it comes to the subject matter. Um, they're not married to a particular side of any equation and are willing to publish, well, controversial books. But uh, but I don't know what the economics are. Um, and again, to approach somebody like Skyhorse at this point or Simon & Schuster at this point, yeah, you require an agent. And these agents, I mean, you know, uh, if they don't have an easy job coming in, they usually don't want it. So, I mean, that's what it comes down to. Um, but I wonder about some of the uh, kind of offbeat publishers, like a, like a Feral House or, uh, you know, some of the other um, smaller ones, let's say. Uh, it, it's kind of interesting. You're one of the few guys that I know that has an array of, of different publishers who have put things out, and yet I I still haven't seen you drop in their in in their catalogs, um, <clears throat> you know Try and Day, which as you well know I have my issues with, uh, but <laughs> it, it's it's almost a shock to me that Try and Day has not come to you and said we want to support a Larry Hancock book, um, and. I I can't see why some of the smaller publishers wouldn't be interested and at least do some work on on your behalf. I mean the stuff that you put out is solid. It, it, It could be handled by an academic publisher who has certain standards about you know what it is that they release not a lot of speculation and you know fluff pieces as you and I have experienced reading JFK literature where there is a whole lot of discussion a whole lot of supposition and sorry, where's the beef? I mean, they don't have evidence. They, they tell a story and it's an interesting story. But they, they mainly just have a narrative in their books. And um, there's been a lot of publishers who have put those things out, higher level, lower level, depending on the name recognition, so on and so forth. Uh, as you well know, I mean, think about the Barr McClellan book, right? Which had a lot of story in it. But didn't have a lot of like. Here's some facts. Here's some stuff that I got to give you footnotes for. Here's some you know solid information outside of the narrative. Um, and I know I'm calling out certain people. I don't care, uh, and you don't have to. But I, I'm just saying you know you know that what I speak of is an animal that exists in the jungle. Okay, <laughs> so.
2: Yeah, but I, I think you yeah. captured part of it with the comments on on uh, <laughs> footnotes. I. For example, we've talked about creating chaos mm-hmm. on the show. Okay, creating creating ca- chaos was my last book that was published by kind of a mid-range specialty per- publisher, very a, a different type of publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, I had taken creative chaos creating chaos to half a diz, dozen different publishing houses, including an academic publisher. Right. Interestingly enough, the academic publisher. Had contacted me and asked me to review peer review a book that they were looking to publish, mm-hmm. which I did. And as part of that exchange, it's like, well, hey guys, I've got this book. and And they asked me because this person was publishing a book on something that I had written about. Okay, right. um, so I submitted the book to them and to the other publishing houses. And basically, the response was the academic publisher came back and said, well, you know, this is interesting. And it's yes, it is the same topic that we do books on, but it is not academic enough. It's Mm. not in the format that we would use in a classroom. And without saying so rather subtly, they also said you don't have a doctorate. Uh, uh, okay. And that's kind of our requirement. Right? Uh, okay. Uh, the general public houses that I took it to basically came back and said, "Well, this is interesting, but our our we've looked at the book and it's not it's not quite frankly sensational enough. It, we don't think that we could hype it enough. Mm-hmm. We don't think it." We don't think it is marketable enough to meet our goals, and our goals are, and I've said, well, you know, what are your goals? And it's like ten to twenty thousand units. Mm-hmm. Well, I okay. Um, so basically, it was not academic enough for the academic publisher, and the other folks are saying it has too many footnotes and it's too dense. And so it's too academic for us. It's history. And by the way, why do you think history sells? You know, history doesn't sell unless you're a historical figure. They also made it very clear that, you know, if I had if I had a known name, if I'd been in an administration, if I'd been in a government position, if I had been a commentator, they could market the name. Right. I, I don't have a name that's marketable. So in other so,
1: words, if you had worked in, <laughs> the, in the Bush administration and you wrote... Uh, in denial, they, they would have picked that up right away. I oh, mean, yeah. that, that, yes, that's the kind of thing.
2: And look. I only managed to get yeah. Creative Chaos published because an a publisher who had done a previous book mm-hmm. started contacting his friends and uh, finally found a friend who was basically willing to take a chance on it because he liked the content but that guy is no longer with the public. These guys are all of an age where they would support a topic like this, uh, and now they're retiring. Um, see, in denial, yeah. honestly, as you know, you know Mike's a great guy. It was great that it got published at all, but that's kind of where things are now. Uh, so that's, again, another long-winded answer. I, I'm mm. not sure if I wrote... Anything, at this point in time, there would be a publishing outlet for it.
1: Um, well, see, it kills me because, look, there is timing involved here, too, right? Right now, as we speak, it seems to me like a guy like you has written about various things that could be easily uh, discussed related to the Cuban topic, okay? Okay. You could talk about what's happening right now in the streets of Cuba. If somebody wanted to bring you on as a talking head on one of these news discussions about Cuba, you could talk about the historical aspects of what used to be. And you could talk about what's happening now. You could talk about the speculation about whether there is intelligence involvement with XYZ, whether it is this, uh, uh, the attacks that have now become uh, I forget what they're calling it The Cuban syndrome right The the possible directed we- energy weapons thing You could talk about The way that that would work <laughs> You could talk about What's happening in the streets And how that relates to And what the US position on it Has been in the past And what it may be today I guarantee well, you could you, I'll do I'll
2: give you an even funnier one Chuck has yeah. kind of abused me Is given And this is The other venue that I work in, especially these days, given my book unidentified, Mm -hmm. given the amount of media discussion of UFOs, I would have thought that any ambitious publisher would have probably had an editor do a quick Google search Mm -hmm. and call me up saying, couldn't you rush a new book out on UFOs within about 90 days because we know we got a market for it.
1: That was my next.
2: I've had no calls.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That was my next go to actually. Because, look, we discussed before about creating chaos and how it just seems like you were ahead of the narrative. You should have been ready and waiting for creating chaos to be somebody that was called upon, let's talk about Putin and what's going on here. Uh, For about a year, (laughs) they had that opportunity, and your book was already out, okay? So that was there. That was then, this is now. You're right. I talked about Cuba because it's the latest thing that you could talk about and here, I've also written a book. I've written several books where I've had to discuss Cuba in depth. Uh, you know, pick one. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, unidentified, perfect example of somebody going through it. It's not super sensational. It's not, I know there was an alien autopsy. It's not, you know, Area 51 uh ish right where you know you get into all these speculations and people talk about you know the different secret facilities and maybe they want to talk about skunk works and groom lake and this and that no it's not all madness it's actually about the national security state's reaction which is perfectly aligned with what it is they've been discussing why is it that the pentagon's releasing videos well let's discuss how the pentagon usually reacts we go to larry hancock i mean it's a no-brainer, Larry. I don't know why. Uh, the, the larger publishers or some of the media outlets, you wind up talking to me, and I love you, and I do the best I can for you, but dear God, man, I I, I feel like uh, it, 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 they're, they're missing the boat with you and your work, and I'm not just saying that because you're on my show. I mean, for real, you could provide—I mean, I guarantee— they would get a lot more out of 10 minutes with Larry Hancock than they, they do these other uh, uh, wing nuts they bring on to discuss this. Here's our go to national security uh, analyst who, you know, a couple of weeks ago was actually talking about food. Uh, but let's bring him on because that's his job title here at, uh, you know, Alphabet Soup uh, News Group, whatever. And it's like if Larry was there, he could talk about the way the national security state reacted. And does react to this stuff.
2: <sighs> and not, I, just, yeah. not just over the last two years, but I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't have a good explanation for it. But so I, I do plan. I'm, 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 in continuing to be engaged in research uh, right now, especially in regard to JFK, mm-hmm. doing a lot of brand new research on the subject of UFOs, UAPs. Uh, mm-hmm. And I expect to be do more, doing more writing on that. Uh, and and this is real research. It's not just commentary. Uh, well, yeah. Doing a lot of research on indications analysis and the way you study this stuff and the patterns that are emerging, which really somebody should be interested in. But I, I can't guarantee to any listener that it will ever make it into print. Um you know, if somebody at home has a friend who's a publisher, send them my
1: way. Listen, if I can find you a publisher, I will. I'll tell you that. But as you well know, I'm not affiliated with too many publishers. Uh, but uh, if the opportunity arises, believe me, I'm going to say, you know, Larry Hancock is a guy who can, uh, if you want to actually put out informative literature, this is your man. You know, I don't know why it is you guys aren't using them already. Uh, and and there, there are several publishers that I've been surprised have never published something from you. Because I take a look at some of these books that I've read and I say to myself, it is a shocker to me that this was not published by one of these other places who, again, maybe not the largest publishers. But some of the middle level ones that have been, you know, uh, fairly successful for a long time, I, I I am shocked that some of them just didn't pick up your book along with a lot of the other stuff they had already put out um, and and they and they there's all kinds of people in their universes that uh, honestly refer to you and know you <laughs> and I'm like why is Larry not included I mean is it is it simply because you know for the PhD crowd you don't have a PhD and then for the uh, you know, the 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 star uh the, the the star-studded crowd you don't have the um you know the resume that makes you uh, interesting because you're not an insider so you know we need to publish insider books uh i mean is is that all there is to it because again the information is solid uh the the, the writing is you know impeccable uh when, when it comes to you know after a couple of revisions I, I mean I've seen some of your stuff without revisions and I can't even you know I can't come close to it myself so I'm not saying this like I'm being a critic of it but I mean even without revisions um your, your writing is sometimes better than the people they're paying good money to uh on a lot of levels I mean I'm, I'm being honest here Larry it, it... I,
2: I think what what it may it just may reflect the stage of writing in general I mean not just writing for books but for TV for histories let's look at the broad concept of since I write about history mm-hmm. primarily okay um people really are trying more and more to package their history i mean we we don't get into the na- have to get into the national news to see that there are people that want particular packages in their history books they want particular histories taught in their schools mm-hmm. they they it's kind of a comfort thing they have a model Oh, here's what a history course should look like or here's what a book should look like on this subject let's let's put it in a box let's let's build a fence around it let's let's you know let's make a model of what we want to see and then let's go look for somebody who will give us that because we know what our audience wants we we've we've Done enough market research, we've looked at our steels. We know what they want. And so I, I think I don't know what that represents. You know, there was a lot of there's not a lot of out of the box stuff going on now. There's a lot of it, it fits my particular standards. It's in my silo is you know, is the new term that everybody seems to be using. Okay. Um and so I think that they have such a I don't fit their models, just as you say. You know, we need a writer with these credentials who's, you know, people are going to trust what he say, says because of the credentials. I, when we're talking about my whole body of the work, I, one of the things that may have trapped me, but two things that trapped me is I didn't just stay in the box. I didn't just study the JFK assassination. I didn't, you know, I I broke out of the box... To learn a whole bunch about intelligence, national security, covert operations, that I could bring back and talk to in regard to that assassination or the the King assassination. So, you know, I thought that I thought that was a good thing at the time. Uh, that was the reason for several of the other b- books, as to mm-hmm. not just take a topic and stay in the vein of what everybody was doing with that topic. Let's just Let's go deeper in this, um, and I, I may have trapped myself. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, quite frankly, I always entertained by the review. A couple of the reviews I've got, which at the time I thought were very, very good reviews, where somebody like Publishers Weekly would say, "Oh, this is a great book because Ooh. it's it's really objective, and it it's really factual, and it's not sensational." Now uh, I'm wondering if that wasn't like being damned with faint praise, ooh, you're know, like okay, yeah. this was this <laughs> these uh, <yeah>. this, <laughs> these guys are these guys are just dull, you know uh, uh, in any event, so I wonder about that too yeah i I
1: guess I guess you were supposed to uh you know create the salacious headline to go along with the history, whether it was true or not, hey you you put it in the form of a question and it works fine right uh, so if, if you if, if you put it out there but wait a minute you kind of have already done that sort of
0: hmm in
2: other, in other words i think i might have been a great author for the 70s or 80s i'm i'm not that sure that i'm good for the you know 2120s
1: <laughs> ah i don't know you know
2: it, it it's
1: it's strange to me because again as i said i I, like i was sitting here thinking while you were talking that well why isn't there a like you know uh uh, uh, a set of things that you could put together sort of like uh what was it dick Dick russell did it uh where he had a, a series of stories right in a book and that sold well um i i thought anyway i'm not sure i don't know the numbers off the top of my head but it seemed like it did well uh where it was just a series of stories see the problem with you is uh, your writing's too coherent uh (laughs) if it was a bunch of short stories put together uh and and maybe you just told anecdotes you would have done yourself a favor because it's too dense for the short attention span of of a lot of readers who are interested in the inquirer type headlines right and um it's it's not academic enough for the academics uh which you know i i I have my issues with that too um but but either way uh it's like you you wind up falling in this in-between place where you've done really good work but as as they said there it's like this is very informative and it's not very sexy basically is what they're saying um well maybe all of history is not entirely sexy you know and uh I, I guess the more successful authors when it comes to sheer numbers and, um, you know, and, and having that name recognition, maybe you needed just one good sexy book. Right. And yeah, that would have been enough to I'm ride on.
2: my wife that.
1: <laughs> so I look, I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, disparaging you in any way here. I I'm just saying, I'm, I'm looking at how ludicrous the whole thing is that you're not just more prominently featured by a lot more people because you should be. Um, And and I don't see why it is. Again, they're not using you, even in these discussions that they're they're using people that have no, you know, yeah, they have a publishing history. So here's a guy like Chris Matthews, for instance. There's a guy who has name recognition. Now, I got to be honest with you. I don't really care what he's got to say about JFK in Cuba because (laughs) I I just, he gives me no indication that he knows at all what he's talking about you know bill o'reilly before he uh, uh fell from grace whatever uh you know he, he wrote his book killing everybody right i mean you know he's killing kennedy killing uh, uh i forget who else eisenhower i don't know uh everybody right killing Patton, killing jesus sitting bull, sitting bull. i mean you know his whole killing people series nobody would have cared about any of that nonsense had he not been bill o'reilly and those books even though he has an entertaining format so to speak uh are not filled with enough information to be worthy of my time (laughs) okay when i've looked at it i mean i i'll I'll confess i I read the killing kennedy thing uh and it was like wow that was a gigantic waste of paper um really i i just i I can't see how there's any value to that except that well it's bill o'reilly right uh, I don't know. And well, meanwhile, I, yeah.
2: I, I give you an example. And, and I, th- I think this kind of helps. I have to say probably one of my biggest disappointments in, in more recent years has been in conjunction with the book in denial. Because mm-hmm. as we've talked in denial has a very extensive study of the CIA's Cuba project, Eisenhower's uh Cuba project and Kennedy's Cuba project, and presents a totally different story of JFK and the Bay of Pigs than ever has ever been told. Right. Okay, but I, it's all documented and it's actually out there for people to get if they went and looked at it. The other day, I just I happened to be doing a search because I'd picked up on a on a a graduate paper that had been written about the Bay of Pigs, and i read through that and it. It wasn't bad, although it, it missed a lot of stuff. But I started doing a search and looking at other recent books, articles, th- mm. and reading them and scanning them. And again, the history of the Bay of Pigs and JFK as being told in everything that is still being written as of right now, 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021 is largely wrong mm. because all of these guys are resurfacing the same history from 50 years ago they really haven't done their homework and I have been able to make absolutely no penetration against that and it just it really is frustrating for me that history is going to go on recording the wrong story about the Bay of Pigs because one CIA officer was so successful in covering up his own failure Mm -hmm. that he prejudiced prejudiced history about the whole event. And I think, you know, it was great to get that book out. It's great to get it in print. It just, we've, we've had no traction at all. It didn't, we weren't able to get it reviewed. It's in no libraries. It's never going to get commentary. And I have to say that is, it's very discouraging to be able to paint an accurate history that really should change so much, and have it just bounce. It's <laughs> like, okay, this is just going to do no good whatsoever. Well,
1: see, again, that's why I brought it up first when I talked about why is it that other media outlets aren't grabbing you as even just a, a you know a additional figure to give us give us a historical perspective, Larry Hancock on what the relationship has been with the u.s and cuba if all they wanted to do was that they could get real good solid information and actual answers to their questions from you (laughs) okay that's what i'm saying and they're not doing it um like i said with creating chaos same thing unidentified same thing um There's stuff in Unidentified, i got to be honest with you. I mean, I used to read a lot of that kind of stuff when I was younger. I I told you this before, I think, off air. That, um, you know, I read what the literature was like several years ago about, well, this is how the military reacted. Now, a lot of it starts off, obviously, with the, let's talk Area 51. Um, But then they get into, sometimes, a good author would get into... This is the way the military acts. This is what the FBI does. You know, like I found out about that thing with Guy Bannister being involved with a... a, a you know, I found out about that several years ago from somebody who wrote about UFOs. I thought that was interesting. But they talked about how the FBI might have handled it. They talked about how the military might have handled it. um, And I found that interesting. But there wasn't a lot of information. You actually... Wrote a whole book on it, that you know tells tells quite a few interesting stories. First of all, that are real stories, you know, not speculative, not hypotheticals, but real stories. And you explain how this works using real stories. And to me, it's like, why is it? It's almost uh, uh, negligence on the part of, of of the media. To not contact a guy like you and say, "How does how did this work?" Even if they don't acknowledge that you know how it works right now, we could look at historically, you know. And I'm not saying you don't know how it works right now, Larry. I'm just saying that evidenced in that book, you have a firm grasp on how the uh, the the uh, uh, a security state in effect reacts to incidents. Why is it they're not talking to you about that when they're talking about, well, here's the pilots and these are actually pilots who have turned, you do that in your book where it's like, these are, these are not UFO hunters. These are military people. Here's what they went through. Here's what was reported. Here's what wasn't reported. You showed that in your book. So anyway. I don't want to linger on this too long because I, I want to move on to some other questions and things that uh, I think are of high interest here but it, it just it I find it entirely frustrating and it must drive you up a wall that uh, that you know you're you're underutilized uh, and and could be you know not only for your own benefit but for everybody's benefit could be out there and able to uh, uh, draw pictures for people to get them to uh, uh, comprehend how some things work and they don't they don't call on you they even even the people who are outside of the mainstream who are more fringe like i could see you being on a uh, you know like say a joe rogan podcast where he's got to ask how is it that these people react to ufo's tell us why what why are you not on there why are you not on a lot of other places talking about that i i don't know i simply don't know but i it's just frustrating anyway so given that um but there is the possibility that that you'll be doing some more work uh however you, you you sound like you want to write articles and monographs but who knows one of them might grow beyond your uh your control and become another book is is that is that about where we're standing there <laughs> uh,
2: that that would that would that very absolutely describes it yeah i i will be writing more papers i i drafted a paper uh, this afternoon, a, a short paper having actually having to do with uh, UAPs and, and indications analysis, and sent it off somewhere. Uh, so, yeah, I I can see doing that. I don't I don't plan to stop. I just don't see. Guess what it amounts to is I just don't see a route to publication. Uh, a route that was open, you know. 10, 15 years ago that just doesn't seem to be there anymore. And the, it's not just me. I know other people in the same boat. I know Stu's in the same boat. Uh-huh. Uh, so, yeah, that's, to be honest about it, it would be, you know, certainly there are other venues to publish. But here's the thing. As I said, when you write history, and if you're going to put the time and energy into actual research, go to the documents, go to the interviews, go to the oral histories, you're going to put that amount of time into it mm-hmm. and produce something that is real history and you can't get it reviewed and you can't get it into the libraries, you know, what was it all about? You Did you just please yourself? I, I'm not against that, but, you know, it, it, it does discourage you a little bit if if you don't see a chance to have it make an impact, which is is what I just whined about in regard to in denial, so that's enough about that.
1: <laughs> no, fair enough. Um, a a live question comes in via Skype, uh, and and I'm going to try and move on from this sort of topic after this question. But uh, so if, if you guys do have questions, go into the chat room at ocelli.com while we're live. Or, uh, you know, send them to me too later if you're hearing this via podcast, that's fine. Info at Ocelli.com. I'll be more than happy to pass them along to Larry. Uh, You know, and and you could reach out to Larry too by going to Larry-Hancock.com. That is uh, his site. You can see a lot of the books that he's published. (laughs) You can also see his blog if you go to Larry, I I often say Larry-Hancock.com, and some people don't know what a hyphen is. So... (laughs) Larry-Hancock.com. Anyway. Um, So, yeah, the the question from Skype is, uh, does Larry think that there is a... uh, Let me me get it in front of me so I see it exactly as it's worded. Okay. Does... Hold on. (laughs) Sorry, Larry. (laughs) Um, Oh, does Larry think that writing about JFK's murder... Uh May have caused people to shy away from his work in general.
2: That is a really good question, and i can't I can't say that that isn't true. I don't have any concrete proof for it um, I, any more than I would have any concrete proof to say writing about UFOs in the intelligence community. Might not cause people to shy away from it mm-hmm. uh, i I wonder i can't i i don't I think that that definitely might impact the academic publishers mm-hmm. uh, but that's not the only thing that's going to impact them. I don't think it would hurt with the the mid range publishers uh, as as Chuck said somebody like a skyhorse that's not going that's not going to bother them no, no uh no. The publishers that I've had in the past that would not bother them a, a you know an imprint of Simon and Schuster interestingly enough uh, my uh, Stu and my books on the King assassination have been picked up because that publisher was picked up and now they're being published under the banner I think of Simon and Schuster hmm. uh, so no I don't I don't think that I don't think JFK contaminates it. I really think it gets back to, uh, gets back to more of a business model, I think, than anything else. And and some editorial staff, I I can't tell you the number of times that I've gone to a publisher, and literally come back and say, we read the book, it was really interesting, but our editorial review group doesn't think it has the legs to sell well enough mm. you know so they're pretty usually you get panned about your writing i mean that's the honest truth that you usually you get rejected because of your writing i tend to get rejected because it, it's of what i write about in terms of volume i guess but the answer to your question i have no specific evidence that it would contaminate the mid-range imprints that would be most likely to do it. No, they, they wouldn't be put off by JFK or MLK or even UFOs.
1: Okay, no, fair enough. I mean, I, again, the mid-range ones, and, and Skyhorse, it, it, I hate to bring them up again, but, I mean, look, they, they were more than happy to publish Roger Stone. Uh, they've been more than happy to publish, you know, c- clearly obvious, bigger-name people, uh, again, based on their connection to stuff. And Roger Stone is... <sighs> despite the fact that I don't like it, is a well known person because of his interconnectivity with other well known persons. Um, but uh, but they wouldn't I
2: I know what the real answer to this is. The real answer is that I made a serious career mistake in the seventies and eighties and was not involved in any scandals. Ah that that must be it. Bad career plan
1: no hey hey listen as as long as that's the answer I, i'm i'm good with it uh and, yeah. and, you know it's like i, I recognize i recognize that uh, you know listen your your career choices can come back to haunt you and um you know i'm i'm clearly uh well personally familiar with that so it's okay i understand <laughs> so so really what you needed is to uh be somewhere near somebody who uh, got themselves uh, some headlines in the '70s and '80s? That that would have helped you out a lot.
2: That w- that would have done it. That would probably have actually got me a commentator position on one of the news networks too.
1: Well, there you go. Maybe one of those paid. You know, uh, we're, we're going now to historical analyst Larry Hancock over That's on. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> As you well know, Larry Hancock is. You know, it's sort of like how Dick Morris became a guy. I, I that that one always kills me. Dick Morris. <laughs>
2: i mean they could say look he's old he knows what he's talking about
1: yeah forget about how it is you know who he is or anything but uh you know and ollie north and uh you know a <laughs> round table ollie north dick morris and larry hancock i i, I would i would pay to see that uh larry <laughs> uh, and your host roger stone um okay
2: I just saw another Skype question. Somehow it came across the screen.
1: Yeah, I. you know what I did is I uh, I, I picked up the question, the, the general statement from the chat room there. Wanted to give you a minute to read it, um, which I sent over to you. And uh, I, I don't know if you can see that, but if you can. I can't
2: see it anymore. It looked like an interesting question, though. Uh,
1: you know what we'll do? We'll get ourselves together and we'll answer it in the next hour. Uh, because okay. uh, I, I want you to read through it And look at it And, and tell me what you think Without me uh, reinterpreting what, what the guy asked uh, So uh, Citizen GX in the chat room we, we will ask that question of Larry In the next hour um, But anyway Let's get away from the publishers And all that stuff um, I, I where, where Where should we go next? Well all right, we, we know that uh, I did say earlier that uh, there, there will be a, a Lancer conference that I guess in some way or other you're, you're definitely going to be involved with uh, coming up. So we'll, we'll have more on that in future shows. Um, but outside of that, that, that's another weird thing I wanted to ask you about. I don't see you getting invited. Now, maybe I missed it, but I haven't seen you getting invited to too many of these uh, presentations over the past few years uh and that's not because there's any lack of material for somebody to invite you to speak or to participate um i would think in fact it would get even easier considering that a lot of conferences are being held virtually um stuff like that i i'm I'm trying to figure it out larry because you're not see i know why some authors become persona non grata because um, a they're jerks or b they have demands or c they're impossible to work with uh and that's that's a bunch of different authors about a bunch of different topics that i'm interested in that i get anywhere near them and i find out that this is what the problem is um you don't suffer any of that you're not an insufferable person your work is solid <laughs> you have multiple things published i don't see why you're not getting constant invites for all sorts of conferences and things, which would again, help to promote your work. And I don't see it happening. And I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm just saying, I'm baffled why Larry Hancock is not more included with, you know, I I mean, unless you're turning a lot of stuff down, I mean, you don't have to tell me, but it just seems to me like you're you're not being invited to a ton of places because you're not showing up in a ton of places where I could see, you know, Larry Hancock would fit perfectly there. If anybody asked me, they'd hear it. But uh, it just, I I don't understand. Is is that something that you're intentionally doing? Or do you have an idea why that's going on? Because, as I said, you you could easily be invited to different UFO things that have gone on, just off of the one book. There's lots of historical uh, conferences that occur outside of the assassinations and the JFK stuff, which, you know, I'm I'm always interested in but even outside of that you you could be asked to speak or participate in a panel or and I don't see them doing that what is is this because you don't want to or is this uh is this just the way it is I mean you know if you don't mind tell me about that
2: No I certainly do have some thoughts although from the broader perspective it's sort of depressing because this is sort of, this conversation is kind of reminding me of my dating experience in high school <laughs> You know, so, you know, thanks for bringing that back again, Chuck. Uh, No, I I think what it is, I I do, for example, I have been invited to address a couple of uh, college classes on the JFK assassination, Mm -hmm. and I've done that. One I kind of routinely do every summer, but I didn't get an invite this year. Um, Mm -hmm. I've actually given... Presentations at a couple of local colleges, but that's just been sporadic. Um, considering how good, bad, or indifferent, considering how often my name just show up in Google searches of of JFK, for example, mm-hmm. I'm kind of surprised that I don't get more invitations of that sort. Um, but I don't recall any that I've turned down. Uh, I've I have spoken on lots of podcasts uh, lots of even UFO interviews but not routinely you know Mm -hmm. I'm I'm usually get invited when there's a new book out and there's a a spate of appearances and then it just goes away Um, but beyond that okay I think the real answer gets back to what we were talking about just a little bit ago as time has gone on or This whole field, if you will, not national security or I I don't get invited there. I mean, are my books a surprise attack and shadow warfare at all the national war colleges and special forces schools? Yeah, it's in their libraries. Mm -hmm. Is it in Harvard and Princeton and Yale? Yeah, it's in their libraries. But I don't have a I don't have a rank. Nobody is going to invite a former Air Force staff sergeant to talk at at a military conference. I don't have those kind of credentials to get me in. But they may like the books. The books may be useful, but not me. Um, hmm. But when we draw back to JFK and even MLK and RFK, a lot of the conferences, I won't get too specific, but let's say there's a conference on the deep state hmm. and the overall uh, milieu of the conference is we're going to have a lot of people talk about how there is a deep state and how it's managed all the affairs of the last 40 years and is somehow involved in all of these conspiracies and more. I, I don't go there. I don't. Yes, certainly there is a deep state from a political standpoint and a commercial standpoint. Right. But in terms of being a big conspiracy guy a broad conspiracy guy, a deep state conspiracy guy. I don't fit that. Right. I, I'm not I'm not that kind of person or that kind of writer, which is kind of strange, because I've written about three different political assassinations and found a conspiracy in each one, but it's not the same one, so nobody likes me. You know, what can I say? Well, see, they want the same conspiracy
1: see, before we go to break though this is this is one of the more frustrating aspects of this, okay, and I promise I'm going to lay off a why is it Larry's not being published or invited <laughs> places uh and and again, my apologies about your dating experience in high school, but uh sorry sorry to trigger bad memories um, but you know another topical thing that has been out there the past couple of years and is still topical now domestic terrorism um i i found it bizarre that you and Stu had not been invited as as a pair (laughs) okay i mean i invited you but you know i'm me uh but one would think that you know the the king center might want to talk to you one would think that some of these other people that want to discuss this and focus on it and say you know uh white nationalism is an issue well, here's some history behind it, and here's our presenters. Um, the two of you
2: <laughs> are, uh, are easily we were the worthy. We wants to write both of us. It, we wrote about these these same ultra radical paramilitary, yeah, <laughs> white identity groups a decade ago. We right. and, and Stu wrote in more depth than I. And we we profiled all of them that are now, you know common dialogues but it so for some reason it didn't register
1: yeah yeah uh, no i mean but that, that's my that's my last ultimate point i mean about this but i mean i'm just saying it's one of those things where you would think and i know there've been conferences on this there have been uh, law enforcement conferences on it there have been political meetings about it there have been uh, again the specialty stuff like the king center and the assassination museum uh, in, uh, in 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 um, uh, what is it Memphis, I think right? Mm-hmm. Uh, right they've done presentations uh that would rest on the stuff you and Stu wrote about together um why aren't you there <laughs> you but, know
2: but i th- i think <clears> throat> I, throat> I think there's a dichotomy mm. a lot of it, i will not say a lot a number of those conferences, just like the discussion of the King assassination in general, uh, mm-hmm. 90% of the people that have written about it, 98% of the people have written about it, right. wrote about it as being a deep state conspiracy. Mm-hmm. We didn't. So we don't fit the model. So we're not going to match the rest of their speakers. Um now the interesting thing is we would fit the model for those people that might have a conference on domestic terrorism.
1: Well, but that but, was that was my point. Is not present in either one. I get that. Okay, <laughs> you don't fit the uh, you know multiple. I mean the hydra of uh, conspiracy theory related to the king assassination. You're you're not really focused on any of the normal heads. That are drawn in that particular Illustration okay I get that But even so There have been conferences like I said From law enforcement And political groups and everything else Regarding precisely What it is you wrote about And I still don't see and the And even advice.
2: more so Stu with American Jihad How, how anybody can yeah. Have a conference on Domestic terrorism And not find American Jihad and invite Stu just blows my mind can't yeah. understand it
1: no I, listen I was going to say that too but I, I would say that the two of you together could provide I mean a an incredible hour of presentation if you were invited so I, I again don't get it but anyway uh, you guys who are listening to this I know you get it Larry Hancock is with me and we are concluding in essence with uh, one of the last two planned episodes here uh, the, the collected works of Larry Hancock with an addendum here. And so far I've discussed publishers and uh, where it is Larry's not being invited. Uh, but <laughs> but I assure you we're going to get into some other topics as the show progresses. And uh, go to Larry-Hancock.com and take a look at the man's work and words yourself, if you like. And uh, I'm sure I'll mention that again before we're done. But meanwhile, we're going to take a break here and be right back.
0: Revelation through conversation. WallStreetWindow.com Gold, silver, the stock market. WallStreetWindow.com Perhaps you're invested deeply. Perhaps you're not in deep enough. Maybe you're thinking about getting started.
1: WallStreetWindow.com Michael Swanson, the brilliant author of The War State, understood these trends professionally for many years, and now he
0: gives you the benefit of his knowledge. WallStreetWindow.com Go there now. Go there now. Go there now. In Denial Secret Wars with Air Strikes and Tanks by Larry Hancock. Secret Wars became a staple of U.S. covert operations and are still happening today. Larry Hancock's book, In Denial, rips the cover off many of them. Using new files, it exposes things about the Bay of Pigs that no one has ever written about before. It shows why it really failed and why the United States did not learn from it. Secret Wars became a staple of U.S. covert operations and are still happening today. It also shows why other countries today are doing secret operations with more success. This is the book that puts what some want to deny into the light. In Denial, Secret Wars with Airstrikes and Tanks. Larry Hancock. For more information, go to Larry-Hancock.com. Pick up your copy of In Denial at Amazon.com in digital or physical form. Yeah, I'm interested in the truth about the JFK assassination. Right. Well, what do you want to know? Judy Baker's wild claims Oswald girlfriend. She knew Ruby and Barry. Cancer weapons. Really?
1: I imagine I could claim I have four wheels. It doesn't make me a wagon, but okay. Oswald
0: was on the kill team and trying to prevent the murder of John Kennedy. Come on now. Has a real effort on the JFK assassination look into her claims? Go to
1: Amazon.com. Enter Judith Baker in her own words. You'll get results for a digital copy of a book where Walt Brown utilizes her own words and the known evidence in the case to get at, well, (laughs) a different perspective, let's say. You can get Judith Berry Baker in her own words from the author himself, signed, if you request it, by contacting Dr. Brown at K-I-A-S-J-F-K at AOL.com. It's a fun book, and it actually dissects the many, many fantastic claims. Judith Berry Baker in her own words.
0: Thank you for all the great information. Ochilly.com. Do you like history, real history, that you were never taught in schools? Why the Vietnam War, nuclear bombs and nation-building in Southeast Asia? By author Mike Swanson, with new documentation never seen before that'll open your eyes to events that led up to this. Why the Vietnam War, nuclear bombs and nation-building in Southeast Asia, 1945-1961? through Get your copy today at Amazon.com. Dot com. Why? The Vietnam War. By author Mike Swanson. Revelation Through Conversation. This is James Corbett of Corboreport.com, and you're listening to the Ocelli Effect at Ocelli.com. Ocelli.com. Learn from our relatively weekly history, my brother. That's where I'm coming from. I say how powerful you do people. And now, the most underrated voice in all media, Chuck
1: Ocelli. second hour the Ocelli Effect continues now here at Ocelli.com. Of course, you could be hearing this somewhere else sometime else but uh anyway we'll 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 see if we can get it up on youtube i I think my suspension is over (laughs) because uh you're you're not allowed to talk badly about the uh the vaccination so uh suspended over on youtube for a bit and a few other places didn't appreciate it but the shows are getting back out again so anyway (laughs) larry Sorry for that little dip into my uh, personal thing. If you go over to larry-hancock.com, though, you can take a look at Larry's blog. You can also take a look at uh, the the works of Larry Hancock. I don't think all the books are actually up on your website at all times, or at least not easily accessible, but um, you'll you'll have plenty of links to work with uh, from my show notes, (laughs) I assure you. And uh, we're going to get into some deeper information. It's just... In the first hour, um, I went through a lot of my frustrations because going through each one of Larry's books, uh, I wondered at all times why he has not been featured. You know, if you do a quick internet search, you'll find Larry. Larry's name comes up on a whole lot of topics that I know people that listen to my show are interested in, uh, but, uh, but you don't seem to come up in the searches when other people need to reach out to experts who have written about subjects they have other people who are allegedly you know authors on this subject and that who in my estimation quite often know nothing but you know somebody helped them write a book and uh, larry does all his own work and it is densely populated with real information and sometimes information that's not popular (laughs) among those that do commonly write about a subject but it is always useful, always interesting, it is always well written. Uh, and you, you don't have to take my word for it, but I really wish you would. Larry, <laughs> um, I want to get away from that topic that we covered in the first hour, but really that was built up frustration from like 11 episodes with you. Uh, where I just, at all times, I'm like, why is it that Larry is not commonly part of a hundred things I see? um and you know again my my frustrations with the chris matthews of the world and people like that where it's like oh this guy he wrote about this so let's bring him on and even though he got fired from his job let's you know what why is larry hancock not on bill maher for instance (laughs) i would love that (laughs) but i i'd actually watch bill maher's show again if larry was invited anyway um Enough of that let's let's get into you know things that need to be said about your collective works up to this point because again, there is the possibility for more um, but it, you almost sound a little discouraged uh, regarding exactly where it might end up, although you did bring up the idea that uh, you could write it simply as a uh, a project to satisfy yourself and you're going to continue to do research on. Uh, historical and contemporary issues. Uh, so I mean I don't know I, I I feel like you'll begrudgingly wind up putting out a couple of other books and we'll have to extend the collected works of Larry Hancock <laughs> in podcast form. Uh, you know over the next uh, little while, but um, but I'm I'm not sure I'm not sure of, of where to go from here. We had a question in the uh, chat which I found really interesting and uh you know I, I wanted to pass it along to you directly so and it's about Cuba and it's about a lot of the things that hey wait a minute are not part of not only the podcaster world uh, when it comes to examining these things or the JFK world but uh don't seem to get a lot of mention on I don't know the History Channel and these other places that are making documentary films um, and I don't know if academically this stuff has been introduced anywhere, uh, but you have written about things that nobody's written about. And um, anyway, I'll just kind of turn over the mic to you to answer the question, if you don't mind, from the chat room, which I didn't uh, didn't read into the air there, but this is the question asked by Citizen GX. And um, <clears throat> I-, I wanted to just hand it to you and let you comment on it and uh, and answer some of the points made. So, uh, you
2: ready to roll? Uh, sure. And okay. there are two parts to the question. Uh, one part of the question, uh, he is he's talked to some old guys that were, while in the Navy, they were, they talk about some kind of action that they were involved in off Cuba. Uh, and the other part has, and so they even talk about shelling Cuba for days, which is, I will, I will say right off to Citizen GX, yes, they did. No, they weren't supposed to. That was against all presidential directives, and the Navy did it anyway. And that's not part of any of the official histories. Uh, I myself interviewed uh, a fellow who served on one of the destroyers who talked about the fact that every day, well, served with force, task force, every day they refueled all the destroyers that were assigned to it And every night, the destroyers made a run into the beach and conducted artillery shelling of the Cuban forces. Um, That was in direct violation of all the presidential rules of engagement. Uh, You can either like that or not like that, but that's what they did. And that was only one example of several instances in which the Navy and the CIA were 180 degrees in terms of action outside of what the president had given as directive for the operation and the rules of engagement. Um, uh, Probably the most striking thing is if you read all of the official descriptions and and know what the presidential directives were, the Navy ships that were supposed to be involved with this engagement were never supposed to approach the coast. Their only role was to screen, screen the brigade transports on their way to towards Cuba from Guatemala, and they were a screening force to protect it, uh, never supposed to engage. However, uh, what we know now is not only did the Navy load a whole series of fighter bombers, strike aircraft, onto the carrier, that was the primary capital ship in that group, um, the munitions that they loaded were all ground attack munitions. And again, since the presidential directive said explicitly that no American aircraft would be involved in military action in Cuba, clearly there were things in the works there that the president did not know about and the Navy was prepared for. Uh, A second part of that is the fact that the president was not aware of and was never told after the fact that the commander-in-chief Atlantic forces dispatched a second naval task group with a supercarrier. And when I say a supercarrier, that would have been a strategic national resource that actually had planes on it that carried atomic weapons. That task force was dispatched so that it would be right off Cuba and in position to conduct direct attacks. And in fact, uh, the admiral in charge of it was bitterly opposed to the fact that he wasn't allowed to go ahead with military action. Uh, That totally disappeared from the records. We only know it now because we've heard that from some of the guys in the task group and a friend of mine fa- managed to find the deck logs of one or, and more of one ship in that task group, which proved that they were sent towards Cuba rather than what they were supposed to be officially doing, which was an exercise off the East Coast. Anyway, long-winded story. There was a lot going on, and I do cover all of this in the chapters on the Cuba Project and the Bay of Pigs that are all in denial, but they're just a whole host of things that really represent how badly disconnected the CIA was. And the CIA and some of the covert agreements it made with the Navy from what the president had ordered. Um, The second part of the question was um, as to whether or not JFK had made a deal with a state government to use his National Guard planes in the Bay of Pigs. The The story of that was actually the CIA, because the fellow who was in charge of the project, Richard Bissell, Mm -hmm. uh, for some strange reason, in contradiction of all prior CIA practices, decided that they would not use contract air. They wouldn't use the people (laughs) that they've been using. Do it the way they had done it in all previous operations. Mm -hmm. Um, He had to get trainers because his decision was that they would only use Cuban pilots for both attack aircraft and transport aircraft. And as it turned out, the only people available, readily available, were a group of Alabama, and actually not just Alabama, I think, maybe Arkansas and Mississippi were involved as well, uh, National Guard units that were still flying the B-26 aircraft. Now, they brought those guys in as trainers, They were never supposed to fly operationally. As a matter of fact, the presidential directive explicitly was that they could not fly operationally. They were never to go into combat. They were never to be at risk. So it wasn't a that was an agreement. That that was what the CIA had set up and what the president agreed to. What happened when you trace the activities at the Bay of Pigs over an hour by hour, day by day situation? The CIA had gotten itself into so much trouble with the brigade that the president actually authorized several things during the course of events that violated his own directives. In other words, contrary to what the history says, in fact, of JFK, you know, restraining operations, he actually authorized the American pilots to fly in support, and they flew on ground attack strikes, and in the end, they flew air support. The only reason they were flying air support was because the Navy was supposed to be there with fighter jets to support them, and the Navy screwed up and wasn't there, and those guys got killed, something Mm -hmm. that the Navy worked really hard at covering up during the Taylor Committee that investigated it. Um, The president actually authorized the Air Force... Conducting supply drops Hmm. with American crews and American planes over the over the the bridgehead, Uh, that didn't happen because of CIA mismanagement and General Cabell's mis. Long winded answer to your story. There's all kinds of things that happened or didn't happen (laughs) that have been totally written up wrongly in the history books. And if it sounds like I'm pissed about it, it is.
1: I barely registered that you're angry about it, but uh, <clears throat> but you are correcting the record, which, again, is interesting. And uh, look, I- I'm actually going to do something here that <clears throat> I-, I I considered not doing, but now I've changed my mind. Um, I'm going to uh, challenge you with a current question. A- and And it's very simple. like if you were indeed invited to one of these places to talk about what's going on in Cuba right now, how up are you on that story? What's what's happening with the protests and all that?
2: I'm quite up on the story. As a matter of fact, I was just reading something this afternoon. The, okay. I mean, it's pretty clear that Cuba has blocked and is jamming all radio transmissions going in and out of Cuba. They've isolated Cuba from the Internet. Um, the Biden administration is about to release sanctions against Cuba, And more importantly, uh, it looks like we may be working towards some sort of technical solutions to at at least allow some people inside Cuba either to be able to receive Internet connectivity or, more importantly, to send out pictures of what's happening. Because Mm -hmm. what's really happening inside Cuba are some very violent and aggressive suppression of the demonstrations that are going on this is very reminiscent of what the Soviets used to do in Eastern Europe uh, during many of the you know, like the color revolutions if you will there is a popular revolution going on inside Cuba and Cuba is desperately trying to cover it up and I I could go into a lot of the history that this is standard, Operating practice uh, inside Cuba, they've always been extremely uh, competent at managing their own internal communications mm-hmm. and jamming, and you know, essentially isolating the island. But uh, yeah, Chuck, I that's I am trying to stay up on that and what's going on. And and the interesting thing is, this is probably. There is more sign, far more sign, of a popular revolution against the regime right now than there was at any time during the early 1960s. And part of that, of course, is there's no Castro as a public figure anymore. There's no right. identity you know, thing going on inside Cuba. But interestingly, the other thing that's going on is apparently... Cuba has been showing so much favoritism towards tourism and setting up ways to gain money that they're they're neglecting their own internal economy for a tourist economy mm. which is really upsetting the population that that appears to be one of the one of the things that's going on among the revolutionaries is they're trying to get across the message that their government stopped doing anything for them.
1: Well, see now, there there was the next question that if I if I were doing one of those nightly TV shows, I would say I would ask you, you know, historically, is this uh, in your opinion as a result of the lack of coherent leadership uh, under the Castros, both Fidel and Raúl? Uh, which was fairly coherent uh, throughout its history. Um, <clears throat> there, there was a model of leadership there that did focus on the internal aspects and making it uh, a, a functional isolationist nation. Um, <clears throat> is there a is there a, a huge difference here because of the the new the new leadership in Cuba historically, from your from your understanding? Yeah. Is that the most significant aspect here or is this a a matter of uh, truly you know g- a generationally oppressive regime finally uh, uh, getting some organic resistance uh, and secondarily is there any chance that this is part of some intelligence operation which is as yet unknown that has provoked what it is we are beginning to witness in part uh, outside of Cuba, because again, internally it's almost impossible to get a full portrait of what's happening internally. Um, is there a possibility that this is uh, the result of some covert actions?
2: well let, let's get back to the first part of the question and then then I'll work work through it. sure I, the, the one the, uh, there were a couple of things that the the Castro regime did the revolutionary regime did um, that really gained them popular support circa 1959, 60, 61, and, and longer than that. One of the things is it, it's you can clearly make the argument that Cuba was a class-structured country. I mean, if, if you had money, you got an education, you got health care, you traveled overseas, you sent your kids to college in the United States. I can't tell you how many of the Cuban exiles that I write about, you know, went to college in New Orleans or New York city. You know, if, if you, if you had money in Cuba, you had opportunities, you had healthcare, you had education, you had, had the ability to advance in the bureaucracy. And if you didn't, you didn't. The revolution turned all of that on its head. Now, the argument can be made is when turning on his head, they killed a lot of people and they disenfranchised a lot of people. That's certainly a legitimate argument. But they made a lot of friends because they um, they immediately and dramatically improved health care for the general public and for the poor. And Cuba became known and actually ex exported. One of the things it did successfully to export its quote-unquote revolution was to send health care professionals throughout Latin America to third world countries that had been in the same state. It really focused on health care. It really focused on education uh, and brought minorities things that they had never had before. And that, whatever bad you might say about it, no matter how many people went up against the wall, in terms of the general public, and when you look at the intelligence collections the CIA was doing, they had to acknowledge that those two things, health care and education, had made such a dramatic po- impact on the overall population that that, plus some repressive measures, held the Castro regime in power. Right. Now, what has happened apparently post-Castro, Is those commitments to uh, socialism, to popularism, to uh, the best I can tell is that somebody neglected the health system, healthcare system in Cuba. And it's not what it used to be. And rather than any covert action, what appears to be the tipping point in this is the pandemic and the fact that the public is that is not getting vaccinations at all. They're not getting health care at all. They're dying in such numbers that that that's the that is the battle cry of the revolution at the moment is the government is not taking care of them primarily from a healthcare standpoint. And then secondarily from, you know, the other considerations like employment and and, you know, some other concerns. But health care seems to be at the center of it. And it seems to have come apart at the seams, Um, somewhat somewhat the same thing you would have to say is occurring in India, uh, where, you know, things can go along for a long time if you don't have anything to stress the system. And the system is bureaucratic and maintains itself. And then suddenly in Cuba, there was this massive stress to the system and it appears to have broken Right.
1: I mean, one, one could even say that in the United States, one thing that has become obvious is the disparity between economic positioning uh, due to the health care issues that have emerged during this time. Um, now, is it causing revolution in the streets? No. But honestly, it, it is no more glaring today. I mean, it is no more glaring than today, I should say, that you know there is a huge difference between the moneyed class and the unmoneyed class in the United States Uh, and and that's given that there is a way to receive some health care here given the pandemic and everything else you you, you can see the stark difference between whether you are moneyed or not here uh, even more highlighted by the current situation but when you take a look at a situation like India and the circumstances that uh, that Modi's trying to deal with, uh, yeah. So now, it, because of the stress on the system, it, it becomes more obvious when there's disparity involved. And sounds to me like it's an organic situation in Cuba so far. Um. So you, yeah. Would, I think yeah. the
2: contrast would be. You're right. I mean, everybody's system gets stressed. In the U.S., that that differentiation, diversity, whatever. But at least you can see in the U.S. that the government has ample supplies and is actually taking special measures to try to get those supplies to some of the groups that are, are normally don't get stuff. Right. I mean, in they're making an effort, and people that are not getting vaccination are making a decision. It's what? like, you could have it if you want it, and they're making a decision not to. In Cuba... Yeah they don't get to make a decision. They literally don't have access to it. Well,
1: let's get away from the vaccination though for a second, because honestly, I I have a uh, conscientious objector point of view on that. But, But let's go to the rest of it. The fact that the entirety of the system is stressed here in the US, they did things like make sure that people weren't gonna necessarily starve, given the disruptions that went on when it came to being able to make a living here. Uh, you, you can't undercut the significance of adding to people's food stamps, making people more eligible for unemployment, stuff like this, so that there wasn't just absolutely nothing offered to the general public during a time when the entire system is being stressed. And in various European nations, you'll notice that they they did a better job, some cases, in my opinion, uh, of taking care of the population that was clearly going to get stressed by the system being stressed, okay? Um, but if you don't... So you,
2: you have a safety net. I mean, yeah. their safety nets... Cuba had no economic safety net. Plus, I I think... Yeah. I can't stress too strongly, you know, there, there are areas that the revolution had claimed as its strong points. And healthcare for everyone was kind of like the shining star. It was huge. It was so huge, when So yeah. when you... Kind of like base your whole reason for existence, or like this is this is what makes us different. And suddenly, it's not there. You just you know <laughs> you took you took two legs off a of your platform. You know it, it's it's just it makes a radical difference. If, if they had if they had never made that such a critical part of the regime. Perhaps it might not be noticed, but now it's obvious, clearly obvious to the Cuban public because the footage I've seen at least seems to say that this is their number one, healthcare is their number one issue.
1: Yeah. No, I understand, but see, that's the thing. If you have a system in which there are individuals who uh, you know, are reliant upon a circumstance to remain fed and healthy for whatever reasons okay and that's kicked out from under them now you have the potential i mean we know this because again when it comes to covert actions in a lot of cases literally undermining the government's ability to take care of its people uh is a good way to get the people to start to revolt (laughs) we know this and
2: economic warfare yes yes indeed
1: so you know so economically And when it comes to insecurity, you know, there was a way for you to get fed in the current system, you're maybe less likely to go out in the streets and protest against it. You're maybe less likely to uh, become an insurgent force against it if you're fed and you're being taken care of, (laughs) okay? Uh, Regardless of some of the other things, okay, so I can't necessarily go out and protest against my government without getting my head bashed in, but you know if i have what i need maybe i'm a little less likely to complain um i mean it's just it's it's basics it's it's really the bare bone basics here and yeah if you make it the centerpiece of what it is you're doing and cuba did have a solid uh medical establishment that was there for the people <laughs> you know it worked and you you, you let that fall down well, now you're going to have people who say, well, what, what, what is this good for if it's not taken care of me?
2: Um, well, it, it, the other thing is they had some economically, when you get to the economics, they had right. some sustaining factors. I mean, let's face it, for, for a considerable amount of time, the Soviet Union helped sustain them economically. Right. And in more recent years, Nicaragua was doing massive economic sustainment in terms of oil and petroleum mm-hmm. and and e- even money um, you know and then that if that drifts away you know one by one you begin to lose you, you just kind of it, it may not be economic warfare per se but it it's, exposes you I guess I, and I don't know uh-huh. that anybody I don't see any sign that anyone necessarily expected this Right, uh, I there certainly we're scrambling. There, there don't there. You know, uh, I don't. And to some extent, you almost might wonder why it what. But there are a lot of things on everybody's plate.
0: Right, you know, let's right.
2: face it. But this, the extent of this popular. I don't think the other thing that anybody expected because it it's not been there for so long. There's always been that. Veil fist with the Cuban society, and you know the government will crack down on you, but it, it's not. We haven't seen the kind of violence that's showing uh-huh. up in some of these videos that are are coming out of Cuba. That and I think that may be a shock to them because it that was that was common during revolutionary days, and everybody knew Che or che, the militia would do that. Castro's would do that, but I'm not sure even the Cubans were expecting this now right right
1: well again that's that's the uh, curse of organic things occurring uh, they're not always uh, based on the models of the past, although in the uh, after action reports you can sometimes pick up on why they happened you know <laughs> uh, that's that's the way I see this and um, you know so far it has been difficult to get a lot of information out of what's actually occurring there uh and and how much uh how much this will truly impact you know people outside of Cuba I'm not sure uh it's it's a it's an interesting topic that's going to continue to be discussed if if anybody bothers to pay attention to it um and that's another thing you know about it that uh that I am curious about but I'm I'm not going to get into it too much more with you because I I basically did what I wanted which is uh <clears throat> present to my listeners what it would sound like if somebody actually you know, ask Larry a question on a <laughs> contemporary issue uh, that 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 I feel they they are really missing the boat, so to speak, on with you, um, and and look at the answer I got. I got an in-depth uh, historical comparison and real-world kind of explanation. And again, you're you're not uh, given all the resources that these uh, talking heads that that haven't written about this in the way you have. Uh, uh, to to work with and still uh, much more concise, coherent and educational than you're going to get anywhere else okay, so with that in mind and with about say 20 minutes left Larry um, I'm going to ask you one more hard question and then we'll just see where it goes and it is if if this was the last of your work that we've already discussed and that was it uh, you know, what, what would you say overall about the, the bookshelf of stuff that, uh, you know, if, if I had all your books still, Larry, which I don't, cause I've lost things <laughs> over the years. I have, I have some on my bookshelf, but, um, but I do know a whole bookshelf could be taken up by your work without an effort. Um, you know, what, what are, what are your thoughts on your own collective works? I mean, what do you, what do you think you've accomplished with them? In general and i don't mean about the reception from the public i mean about the work itself what do you think you've accomplished and quite frankly i mean is there is there anything that uh, you wished you had written about thus far that you have not uh off the top of your head and only at this time i mean that could change because new information new areas of research could produce something whatever else but let's just imagine that's it larry's retiring from writing entirely <laughs> uh you know g- give us a give us a a pulse on what you think you've accomplished and uh and and simultaneously tell us uh, what what it is maybe you you wished you had you know maybe a little regret something i wished i had gotten to or, or had a book on that shelf on this topic or that or whatever T- tell me what you think you've done and what you think you should have done if this was all there was up to this point
2: well I think the first thing is if if anybody had all of those books on the shelf, I, I think what it, it it would provide them and what it provided me is is the fact to is is the ability to break out of the box, to to have and, and we talk about this constantly, Chuck, the, to have the context to look at any particular incident any particular activity and, and have the the context to appreciate it in more depth than it usually gets discussed or appreciated. If you're talking about the Kennedy assassination, uh, just as an example, okay, mm-hmm. if, if you really want to look at that more than just to talk about, you know, the evidentiary problems, the problems of the Warren Commission, what the House to Collect Committee, if you wanted to look at it as as a, na- a crime of national security and of national importance, and it, it's certainly fair to say that all of the political assassinations of the 1960s, uh, JFK, RFK, MLK, had national ramifications and, and affected domestic security international security then you have to it's not just a crime it, it it's a crime and it's it involves the different communities it involves the intelligence services it involves the FBI it involves for that matter the State Department you you need to ha- understand how all of these these different groups deal with with national security issues, and and when you do, lots of things became became become make more sense mm-hmm. as to how you know why certain information is available, why certain information is available, and the fact that it's it's standard operating procedure. I I, I constantly annoy people, including my fellow researchers, when I say something like I know you're going to be annoyed by this but what you're seeing going on here is standard operating practice this is the way these guys do things over and over again it is not unique to this one crime uh, and and if you don't know that and you can't filter it out you can't get down to the core of what was unique and is important to that particular conspiracy and and filtering is it's not somebody something that most people like to do right. so we've talked about it before. I wrote the book Surprise Attack because I wanted to educate myself on what the national security system what the president what the commander in chief does in response to a national crisis, and not just political assassination but other events like in In that book, I cover the Tonkin Gulf incident, uh, the Pueblo incident. I cover the uh, attack on President Reagan. I cover, you know, it's like, how does the system respond to this? And what do we see that was unique about JFK's assassination? Then we can go somewhere. But if you don't know that, you know, uh, what did the Joint Chiefs do? What's the Pentagon's response? you're liable to get carried away and make something out of standard practice. So I think in in terms of the whole bookshelf, a lot of it is to provide the context and the education and understanding on how these different groups and agencies behave when they're doing their routine business, sanctioned operations, their day jobs. And if you read shadow warfare and and in denial, you'll know what that looks like. If you read surprise attack, you'll know what they do when they're under stress and in response to a crisis. And then you can go back and revisit these incidents that, like the political assassination, and start to parse things out. So to me, the whole body of work is more like, what did I have to learn Before I could determine what was really unique and really anomalous and what would lead me to the conspiracy in the political assassinations. But, of course, along the way, it taught me a lot about intelligence practices, which is why I could write unidentified. Um, So the whole book, (laughs) a a short answer would be the whole bookcase reflects my personal education which I've tried to package up and share with folks and, and the insights that it provides. Um, for example, in Surprise Attack, I think I provided a lot of insights into why our, our normal government response to catastrophes and crises is, norm- is so poor and what could be done to, to address that. And as a matter of fact, what the laws say should be done but never are because presidents and congressmen are all so preoccupied with political affairs that they don't look at their role of governance. If you read Shadow Warfare and In Denial, you will understand why our covert operations really hardly ever worked and why what the Russians... And the Iranians and the Chinese are doing now is so much more dangerous in terms of being effective than what we ever did, because they certainly Mr. Putin learned from our experience. Uh, We haven't learned from our experience, but he did. Um, So that may be wandering around a bit, Chuck, but that's to me, that's what the whole body of work represents is an education, uh, a context, the the ability to allow you to see what is and is not important. But on the periphery, it allows, it provides some insights that people that are inside the system don't get because they don't look at it that way. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's why it's in some of the places it is, university libraries and, and those places, because there are some there's some insights you get from being an outsider which we already discussed in the first hour right. i definitely am
1: <laughs> no absolutely and look the the second part of the question uh it, it so happens i got a, a a skype inquiry during what you were just saying and um <clears throat> i i want to echo this person's uh skype inquiry uh i'm going to condense it You know, I I would love to see if you were to add another book to uh, that shelf, I would love to see Larry Hancock's take on the drug war, uh, the war on drugs, because uh, there is a whole lot of national security state aspects to that. There is a whole lot of uh, dirty business aspects to that. And I would love to see a sober view of it. I have my own views. and, And quite frankly, um... I I would uh, actively you know at certain times you've shown me stuff before you published it and while you were writing it <laughs> and uh, I, I haven't offered a lot of commentary um, if you wrote on the drug war you would get a lot of commentary
2: from me uh, and, and, and I could do that I mean yeah. I touch at that on several points in Shadow Warfare because quite frankly mm-hmm. the drug war and I mean the war on drugs and the the collateral damage from the war related to covert operations Mm -hmm. are kind of two things. Two different things that I could combine in a book. But certainly I have touched on that in so many places. Well, you had to have. Yeah. yeah, You couldn't avoid it. Right. Um, But but what I'm saying is a
1: a devoted... Yeah, but a devoted volume on that, Larry, I think would be... uh, Who knows? Maybe that would be your sexy book. uh, Because... (laughs) <laughs> there's there's a thing there uh where you know there there have been some authors who have capitalized on writing about the business aspects of it uh your book would again be unique and who knows maybe that would be sexy enough right sex drugs and rock and roll um that, just saying objectively you're,
2: you're right it would actually this reflects why i i don't i don't I stand in my own way of doing that sort of thing. You're absolutely right. That would be a far sexier book. It would probably be, it would be a, a very emotional book for a lot of people. It would if anything, it would be a more of a maybe not deep politics but deep money book. Um, but the book I would probably really like to write that I don't have the credentials to take anywhere is a book that would combine what we've been talking about which is asymmetric warfare with this new trend in spheres of influence. Mm. I think the the this century is going to be the century of the reemergence of spheres of influence having to do with the various powers positioning themselves to survive the climate crisis and to survive the resource crisis. And that that's a very, very deep subject and that spheres of influence are going to drive international politics and everything that occurs for probably the next hundred years at least Mm -hmm. and the tools that are going to be employed. In the last century, it was cold war political warfare that was going on which was largely ideological this will be very pragmatic survival oriented warfare and it won't be covert it will be asymmetric Mm -hmm.
1: well and it's interesting because we are going to do uh another presentation hopefully in two weeks uh specifically about that topic um and I don't know, maybe maybe that'll be the, uh, the genesis of yet another book, which could be added to that bookshelf we were talking about. Um, <laughs> and I, I would, uh, listen, I'm, I'm all into discussing it with you. Um, but, but I tell you now, I would be a much more active uh, 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 reader and commenter if you were to allow me to see in progress you writing about the drug war. Um, obviously, you've had to touch on it, the Iran-Contra aspect of it for sure because who, who could avoid talking about covert actions in the past century uh, uh avoid that topic right so i mean that had to come up the fact that uh, the drug business has a sphere of influence let's call it <laughs> in the uh general uh, area of covert actions is undeniable um and, and you know look even as we uh, extract ourselves allegedly from afghanistan today and uh taking a look at the large corporatist interests that have gotten involved in all of this um it's a story that's going to keep on being told incrementally over time and you know maybe the opioid crisis is not the current headline but stay tuned it'll come back All right. And if you were to just start with the DEA and the invention of it, (laughs) you know, I, 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 listen, I love Doug Valentine. I really do. And he's done some amazing work on this, in my opinion. Um, But I would love to actively participate in, in uh, a reading as you write it uh, of a book. I mean, even if you decided to only focus on the newest opium wars, uh i would be uh i would be uh, absolutely on board and anxiously awaiting getting my hands on a copy of a book written by you about it um just saying and and that is no uh, uh no shot at doug valentine i love his work i really do uh and there is a lot to be said and yes we could get into cocaine and all that but i mean even if you just focused on the opium aspect of it you know, there's there, there's a lot of possible titles right there that I'm sure your your wife could come up with a good one.
2: <laughs> I'll, I'll give you I'll give you one right off the bat. Mm. It's uh, I I'd probably start with something like value added, mm. and I'd go on with the metaphor of diamonds. Like, you know, there are there are enough diamonds in the universe so that you know they should be free. Everybody should have a five carat diamond and not pay anything. But how do you how do you add value to them? You control the supply and you make them artificially scarce. Does that remind you of anything else?
1: Oh yes. But see now again, I'm a salacious thinker sometimes. I and know. So I would go with uh, something like dope in your bloodstream, <laughs> um, which you know. Or how about this: blood in your dope stream reverse it because here we go there there is clearly a drug business uh in play contextually one talks about organized crime sure and one can talk about the intelligence community again focusing on opium but how about that blood in your dope stream instead of dope in your bloodstream See, this
2: is why I'm never going to be mainstream. What can I say? Well, I, just, I, I, don't I don't have that killer instinct, Chuck. See, I don't
1: know if anybody would go along with my book title, but I'm telling you right now, <laughs> I would buy one that said blood in your dope stream. I'd be like, hmm, I got to read that. Um, and there would be plenty of blood for you to write about in the drug business. One way or another, and you could tie it directly to the uh national security state <laughs> and well, we have
2: blood diamonds, I suppose you could have blood drugs it,
1: exactly it, tell me there is not blood and bodies attached to that business. there absolutely is, <laughs> so you know wh- wh- where where are you going to go from there and again, as i said uh there there's various angles here. you could go two angles on that the the national security threat of the drug business. And then the national security staple of the drug business, and both of them would be valid points of view to explore. Again, these are my thoughts, not Larry Hancock's, but I'm just saying that uh, you know, uh, uh, if somebody cared what I wrote, I, I might actually try to write that book myself. <laughs> it is uh, it, it is worthy of examination and would be another piece of context that would belong. uh uh, quite uh quite correctly on the shelf along with the rest of the collected works of larry hancock um but anyway here i am spitballing at you and we're almost out of time so um i turned it over to you for the last couple of minutes and again we're going to do an addendum here about asymmetrical warfare uh in two weeks but let's just imagine again that we're closing out although i hope we're not and i hope that we have to add to the episodes (laughs) of the collected works of larry hancock because i i want to see more work from you uh regardless so i'm i'm always happy to hear that you've got something new uh and we'll be more than happy to obviously discuss it with you on here uh regardless of who else invites you you've always got a place to come and talk about it (laughs) okay Uh, as long as I'm still running around doing this Um, so you know but how would you sort of again like we always do at the end of the show right tie a bow on this Larry help me out Um, what would you say just you know in in a short concise kind of statement um, about uh, you know what what we've examined what you've examined and uh, maybe what you would like people to take away outside of the context and the learning process that People can go along with you uh, through your works. Uh, what What is it that you'd like people to take away from, say, this particular series that we've done?
2: Yeah, I think what you could take away, and and it's the same thing I take away from it. So it would, would be any reader could take away from it. I hopefully I've, I've shortened the shortened the learning time. I think what you can normally take away is be skeptical and especially be skeptical about simple answers. Uh, Be simple about one-dimensional answers. Be simple Hmm. answers about... Be simple about solutions that involve only bad guys and only good guys. You know, black and white solutions. Uh, When I started out on this whole quest, and it started with the JFK assassination, I really thought it would be fairly black and white you know uh, there was a crime obviously they're bad guys you know why don't we have the answers there must have been bad guys all over the place and what it turned out to be is there were they're bad guys absolutely and I think we're zeroing in on that after all of these decades Mm -hmm. but the reason that it's so hard is because all that happens within a system and you've got to understand the system. You've got to understand the law enforcement system, the national security system. And that's not simple. It, it's And if you if you don't deal with that, and if you don't educate yourself on that, and you don't have the full picture, you're more than likely going to be wrong. Because you're going to find somebody that's part of that picture that you don't like, that you're morally appalled by that you just intuitively respond to as a bad guy and you're going to go down that route right. because that is the simple solution. We all we all tend to pattern to some extent. I mean, I did, uh, in all honesty, <laughs> in terms of JFK, I've had multiple bad guys as we've discussed, Chuck. You know, I've written books about bad guys that I had to throw away because, because it turned out yeah, they were bad guys, but they weren't that bad guy. You know, right. uh, don't be fooled by simple solutions and black and white answers and don't immerse yourself in people that write about a single solution. I, I guess to wrap it up, I, I really still admire the first generation researchers on JFK who simply consider themselves as skeptics? Mm. It's kind of like, no, lone nut. Life's not that simple. Right. Um, Warren Commission report, a lot of problems. That doesn't tell me who's good guys and who's bad guys. What it does tell me is I need to be skeptical and I need to investigate all aspects of that myself. Which is which is why, strangely enough those first-generation skeptics were across the, sp- the political spectrum. Right. There were conservatives and liberals. There were Democrats and Republicans. But they all, they all managed to consider themselves skeptical, and many of them work with each other because they just wanted the truth. And somehow, uh, we've lost a lot of that. It's kind of like, I want my truth. I don't care about yours. I want my truth. I want my bad guys. Mm. And if if you look at my body of work, hopefully in toto, it will take you back to the point of becoming skeptical and not immediately picking a bad guy.
1: <laughs> no, absolutely, and and I agree that that's precisely what your body of work accomplishes is not, not necessarily the simple, I don't, I don't like the idea that you're saying simple answers, because sometimes simple answers are actually the right answer, but the easy answer that just, you know, well, you know, the the easy answer to me is the problem. And so, but, but, but I do understand the sentiment. I agree with you. And, uh, and, and I know that you've accomplished that. I mean, after all, look, black and white yes they're easily recognized but it's the gray areas in which uh, most of life actually occurs (laughs) so that's the way it is and I urge you to go over to larry-hancock.com or larry-hancock.com either way find him on the internet go take a look at his blog look at his works I readily uh, suggest eagerly suggest uh, let's see I don't know i i I absolutely endorse the collected works of larry hancock so let's put it that way and hopefully you if you read them will do the same larry-hancock.com that's the website and again larry i so much thank you and look forward to uh our well perhaps last addendum for a little while in two weeks (laughs) anyway i am merely ocelli all of you are indeed the effect good night